Now, I was just thinking that people always complain about uh, not getting what they think they deserve, not getting what they deserve. And I, I, I was thinking as he was talking at the end there that the reality is in life we ought to be grateful that we don't get what we deserve. <laughs> you complain about not getting what you deserve, but be glad you don't get what you deserve. Uh, and uh, it, it's just an arresting hour, and I, um, I'm still on a high from, from that hour. And uh, that said, let's just go higher. Uh, in this hour, we have two or three uh, resident philosophers around here, and I always love tapping into the philosophy, uh, the philosophers, because they give us a way, uh, a unique way, uh, a different way of, of seeing the world and looking at the world and the challenges we face through a different prism. They help us to reexamine the assumptions we hold. They help us to expand our inventory of ideas. And so I love uh, engaging conversations with uh, brilliant philosophers, and Dr. Lewis Gordon is one of them. He is a professor of philosophy and global affairs at University of Connecticut, UConn, and author of the book Blacks Existentialism and Decolonizing uh, Knowledge, the writings of Lewis R. Gordon. I'm pleased to welcome him back to this program. Professor Gordon, how are you today, sir? I'm all right, Travis. I'm pleased to be here. And to your list, I'd add a fourth. Yes. I consider you to be pretty strong on the philosophy front, man. <laughs> well, I'm 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 thrilled by it, uh, and I'm turned on by. It. Most importantly, I learn from it all the time. I, I I say all the time that I always leave this studio smarter uh, than when I came in. But there's some days I leave uh, uber smarter, uh, uh, greatly enhanced. And those are the days when I get a chance to engage in dialogue with you. So I'm grateful for this hour with you. Let me just do this. Give me a couple minutes here because a lot has happened um, in. Uh, the two hours I've been on the air, and I want to sort of set this up. First of all, there's some major, major, major breaking news out of South Africa. So I want to share the breaking news out of South Africa here in just a moment. Uh, so I'm going to weave a bunch of stuff together, um, and when we come forward, I'm going to let you just take it for the rest of the hour. But I want to just set this frame. So give me a couple minutes here to set the frame based on what's just happened in South Africa and what happened earlier in today's program. So just... Uh, uh, just sit tight, Dr. Gordon, for just a second. Let me let me let me set this frame, and again, you can take it for the rest of the hour. So we were just talking with uh, uh, with with uh, our guest in the last hour uh, 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 about grace and forgiveness. So I want to put that on the table. I'm just going to put a bunch of stuff out there. It's like the Jeopardy board. You can choose what you want and how you want to weave this together. So uh, I don't know if you got a pen and a pen or pencil handy, or you're a philosopher. You're just bright. You remember all this. Uh, I won't, but I'm going to lay it out for you. <laughs> So one, there's this notion of grace and forgiveness that we were just talking about uh, in uh, our last hour. Um, we had you on today uh, to talk about how we can live more ethically and more courageously. So we're going to talk about that. So there's uh, ways in which we can be challenged to live more ethically and more courageously. There is grace and forgiveness that we just, again, spend an hour just hearing this rich story uh, from Brother Ronald. So we talk about grace and forgiveness. Then in our first hour today, we were joined by um, a big fan of yours, a guy named Robin Washington. Uh, again, a big fan of yours, and he is the editor-at-large at The Forward, and he happens to be, not unlike you, black and Jewish. So we had a fascinating dialogue about what it means to be black and Jewish in this particular moment, given what's happening in the Middle East. And then he raised this notion of civility and empathy. There's a lot there. There's civility and empathy. There is grace and forgiveness. There is living more ethically and more courageously. 
And speaking of being black and Jewish, as is Dr. Lewis Gordon, as was our first guest today, Robin Washington. I've never had a program, to my recollection, where I've had two black folk uh, who are both black and Jewish on the same program. But then there's this news out of South Africa. South Africa uh, lawmakers have voted in favor of closing Israel's embassy and cutting diplomatic ties with Israel. Now, that's a powerful statement from any country in the world, to close their embassy and to cut ties with the nation state of Israel. But South Africa is the nation that has done that. They see what's happening in Palestine as genocide, as um, uh, ethnic cleansing, if you will. Uh, and they have cut diplomatic ties with Israel, effective right now, until and unless Israel agrees to a ceasefire in Gaza. Not these three or four hour breaks, but a ceasefire. But that is a bold, bold move. And I don't need to, I got a smart audience. I don't need to tell you any more what I'm thinking. It's South Africa who just made that announcement. Um, there's a lot there. And I wouldn't entrust most guests. Uh, I got some great guests, but I wouldn't entrust most to take all of that and make something of it. <laughs> but if anybody can, it's Lewis Gordon. I'm going to stand down when we come forward and let him take it the rest of the way. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. What's your quarrel with the world? You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Smart talk for curious people just like you. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. 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 Well, actually, you're not listening to Tavis Smiley because I'm about to turn my microphone off uh, and yield to the gentleman from UConn, the brilliant uh, professor of philosophy, uh, Dr. Lewis Gordon. I put a lot out there. Grace and forgiveness, living ethically and more courageously, civility and empathy, uh, being black and Jewish in a moment like this, the breaking news out of South Africa, that they've cut ties with the nation state of Israel. I'm turning my microphone off, Dr. Gordon. I will jump in as need to if I need to probe or interrogate. But consider that for the next 15 minutes until we get to the bottom of the hour, uh, we are auditing your course at UConn. Take, take, take it away, sir. Well, that's a lot, Tavis. And uh, I got to tell you, I love learning from you, too. In fact, the last time we were on the air, I was dissatisfied with my response to our conversation on love and courage. And I've reflected on it, and, you know, I concluded you were right. Mm. Yeah, you were right. And here's, here's some of the reasons you were right. Before, be, be, before, you, before, you, before you go here, I go jumping in. Before you do that, let me, just, let me just set this a little bit, set the table a little bit better. Oh, yeah, I was just about to do that. Oh, no, go, go, go ahead. ahead. Okay, so the Maya Angelou thing. Go, go ahead. Take it away. Take it away. Take it away. Yeah, yeah. Basically, you had said to me that you have had a debate with your godmother, Maya Angelou, and she asked you which virtue is is uh, more important, love or courage, and you went with love, and she went with courage because she said it took courage to love. Mm -hmm. And I said, agree with her, but then I thought about it. You know, And this is one of the things about philosophy we have to take very seriously. Uh, it's not, uh, a philosopher is ultimately a student. We, mm -hmm. we love to learn. So it's not that we have the answer for everything, it's we're trying to figure out things. And as I thought about it, I kept thinking about it, you know, I began to realize you were right, actually. My position now is love more than courage. And, and here are the reasons. And it connects to a lot of what we're talking about today. First of all, the thing you have to bear in mind that in other languages, uh, love is more nuanced than the way we use it in the English language. Okay? 
And so it's even questionable whether love is properly a virtue, because it actually, I would argue, transcends virtues and organizes them. And if we can understand that, right, one can understand, for instance, that one can love what is bad. So that's the first part. Mm. There's the thing there, right? Mm-hmm. But there's another problem that one uh, that one can have around love with courage, okay? And that is that there are times where if one loves, and this is what I said before, if one lacks courage, one can be immobile. Mm. But here's the problem, okay? So at first, it looks like courage is winning out. But here's the problem. What happens if one is courageous without love? If one is courageous without love, couldn't one one now move into the terrain of cruelty? Mm. Now, isn't this what many soldiers, for example, face in situations where they construct an enemy, so to speak, that they must destroy, right? And a lot of people are doing this right now. Some of the issues we're talking about today, the world is being divided into just friends and enemies. And... You know, when you begin to construct people as enemies, you begin to create a distance that's so far away from love that anything can be permitted, and now you're into the realm of cruelty. Mm. And so, you know, the problem we have when we think about courage is not only of risking when, for these soldiers their own lives, but also the process of diminishing the lives of those they fight. And so there might not even be the construction of those they kill as enemies, but something even worse can happen if we have courage without love. Because we get such a distance that we're just dealing with things. And this is part of the, the, this is where cruelty comes in, because there's a kind of mundanity of rendering one deaf to the suffering of others. I mean, this is what we're dealing with in the world today, right? There are people who can only hear if it's their side, mm-hmm. but, but they completely close themselves off to the suffering of others who are not on their side. Now, another thing that struck me when we talk about love, right, is that if you have love without courage, what's interesting is that um, love without courage may not work because you're rendered immobile, but love is at that point questionable. In other words, many people talk about love that demands action, and those who love may be surprised. They're often shocked at what they would do for their beloved or what they love. Hmm. So there are many people who would say, yo, man, I'm a coward, coward, but man, when you love sufficiently, you throw yourself in front of a bus Mm -hmm. for the person you love. Mm -hmm. Now, so, so the crucial thing about love is, as a motivation is acting from love is, right, different from acting from hate. Love could lead to a paradoxical action, for instance, of willing not to have one's beloved. You could even be willing to lose for the, for the happiness of the people you love because of respect for her, him, or them, so much that their freedom is honored. So, like, when you love people sufficiently, you want them to have blessedness, happiness, you want life to be good. Mm-hmm. And, and it struck me that if you look at many ancient myths, if you look all the way through, whether, whether when one look at biblical or, or in other societies, one of the powerful thing, things about love is love emanates. Love makes things grow. It shines. It empowers. Whereas hate is possessive. It destroys. It sucks away. It takes away. 
And so in this regard, then, it challenges the notion of possessiveness. And here's the thing. Bad love, which is what's questioned, is a pathological love of possession. But healthy love is liberating because it makes things grow. Mm -hmm. So as I thought about that, the very fact that courage without love slides into cruelty, it strikes me that, and I got to say this to you, uh, Tavis, that you were right. Okay? Mm. So that's the first thing. And this is crucial because the core of ethical living is going to be connected to that love. Before you before you move off that point, um, let me just ask this. I said I would I would jump in when I need to. You're the professor today. We're auditing your class, and I want you to keep going because I'm taking notes and learning like the audience is. But as you were talking about good love and bad love and the things that love will motivate us to do and what it means to, to have courage without love, my mind for some reason went to uh, the brilliant film from my, my now departed friend, uh, Jonathan Demme, who won the Academy Award best director for Silence of the Lambs, but also directed a fine film called Beloved. A tough film for many to watch. Oprah was involved, of course, in producing it. It's the, based on the book by Toni Morrison, as we all know. But you know the story of Beloved and how she loved mm -hmm. so deeply that she didn't want that baby to come into the world. How would you situate, how would you frame that kind of love, good, bad, or otherwise? I think there's a certain point where, and this is something that was leading up to a little later, that life isn't neatly in black and white. And people act under the conditions that are available to them. Mm -hmm. And so in a situation of absolute hopelessness, acts of love can be very different. Mm. And, the, and the complicated thing is, even though I said bad, there, there, sometimes it's questionable whether certain offerings of love, particularly possession, control, that whether those are love at all. Mm -hmm. but, this is, but this is something far more complicated, and it connects to a lot of contemporary debates. Because as, as we know, the child right, was at a point before the potential of even realizing the situation the child was in. Mm -hmm. And this was a, this was a circumstance. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, this, is, this, is, this is a theme not only that Toni Morrison brings up around enslavement, but it's actually a very ancient theme that goes back to Medea. You mean you, Medea, you mean you mean you mean infanticide? Uh, I'm sorry. You, you talk about you talk about infanticide now. Yes. Okay. Yes, this complicated story. It's in many cultures. Right. This complicated story, and so that is one. That one is even more complicated because you see there are societies that talk about uh, love not only in the form of trying to liberate another, but love also in the form of the suffering paradoxically, you're willing to take on for the people you love. Mm -hmm. Because some people would say that the mother didn't love her child. Mm -hmm. That enabled her to commit that act. But it's the mother's suffering which the novel takes on throughout and the haunting that follows that ultimately exemplify that love for that child and the need for a community of liberation. Mm -hmm. And and this is something we see. There, there's a psychoanalyst by the name of Dion Powell who talks about this. Because she talks about that our, our, if we don't handle our business, so to speak, then we're going to be haunted. In other words, ghosts come around because there's something that we fail to do. And that was insufficient. This is part of one of the things that's powerful in that novel is the actual 
the actual, how can we put it, imperfections, struggles, and humanity of the characters. Mm-hmm. And, and, so, and she brings up something that's very chilling for us to think about. Can you love someone so deeply that you would, you would actually cut off their life rather than have them live the suffering to come. Yes. And I think the jury is and I think the jury's out on that one. I don't want to give a neat answer for that. I think Morrison's brilliance, mm-hmm. not only in that novel, but even her first novel, Bluest Eye, mm-hmm. was to, was to not make it neat. You know the way she mixes the language of the child with the language of the adult mm-hmm. to show the kind of horror of certain kinds of mixtures and what they create. Mm-hmm. So I mean I, I think I think it's too, novels that make it too easy are not good novels. It has to come back on us to ask ourselves in fear and trembling what would we do? Mm-hmm. And and this and this I think brings me to to that point you were raising about um, grace and forgiveness mm-hmm. because as you know Maisha Cherry who is also a philosopher talked about this issue right there there are a lot of people who talk about forgiveness. But, but they don't want to do the work. And mm. here's the thing i got to say. You know, look, um, ethical life, the way I at least would argue about it, is about doing the work. It's one thing to take a position that, say, for instance, you're against violence. But if you just stand on the side and chill while a lot of violence happens, that's not doing the work. Mm-hmm. But the thing about it is if you do the work, you have to understand that you'll be entangled in a whole lot of situations that are not pretty. And that one is something you have to struggle through. And one of the things about forgiveness that some people miss is that, you see, um, there's an extent to which in not forgiving, you remain enshackled with your abuser, your violator, your situation. Now, it doesn't mean you just let things go, but you have to transform your relationship to it so you can act in a productive way, mm-hmm. which means that you do not make your dominator, your oppressor, whatever formulation you may have, be the governing principle of your identity and who you are. Mm-hmm. You have to shift them and bring them down to their humanity, their imperfections, and the ways in which you can move forward, and perhaps they could move forward too, but that's not guaranteed. And so, and this is something that I've always found rather profound because you see, some people miss the point. And this is something that Franz Fanon, the psychiatrist and philosopher from Martinique, mm-hmm. Drusilla Cornell, the, the, the feminist jurist from uh, LA, I just wrote a, a memoriam on her. What they had in common is they understood that the opposite of violence is not nonviolence. It's not even counterviolence because counterviolence is when you stay entrapped in violence. It's actually anti-violence. And paradoxically, anti-violence is not not acting. It's acting for creating a world in which one is not governed by violence which brings us full circle back to love. Counterviolence can be done from hate, but anti-violence comes from love. Mm. You, you have, this is getting deep. You, you have me now rethinking um, my entire, how about I put this? 
Um, you it, you always have me rethinking everything when you come on, but I'm, I'm rethinking now the Kingian frame that I have operated inside of for all these years. So King, Dr. King clearly was not for counter-violence. But when we talk about King, we talk about King in the context of his notion of non-violence. But you introduce in this conversation that the opposite, this notion that the opposite of violence isn't even really non-violence, which is King's philosophy, but really anti-violence. And I'm not sure that in all his brilliance, and I regard him as the greatest American this country's ever produced, I'm, I'm thinking out loud now, I could be wrong, I don't recall King ever talking in those terms about anti-violence beyond the notion of non-violence. Yeah. You know, the way I read King is that King was struggling through, uh, uh, in, the, in the midst of a conflict in which all the rhetorical forces mm-hmm. were being hurled at him. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. So I, I, I think because we have to get to some of the other uh, items, the, the short version of, of my position on King is connected to the fact that it is an absolute falsehood that the civil rights struggle was nonviolent. Hold that thought. Hold that thought. Hold that thought. Hold that thought. <laughs> Are you about to go deep now? He said it's it's a myth. It is a myth that the civil rights struggle was nonviolent. We will pick up on that note and all these other things we will weave together when we come forth. The brilliant philosopher, Dr. Lewis Gordon, who you're listening to right now on Tavis Smile. Interrogating and unpacking. That's what we do around here. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Let's get back to more of Tavis Smiley right now. We are covering a lot of ground in this uh, hour of our program today. We're talking about grace and forgiveness. We're talking about living more ethically and more courageously. We're talking about civility and empathy. We're talking about what it means to be black and Jewish, as is our guest in this hour, Dr. Lewis Gordon, the brilliant philosopher out of UConn. And we're talking about, uh, we will be talking about, as we move through the rest of this hour, this breaking news out of South Africa. Uh, The South African lawmakers, lawmakers, that is, have voted in favor of closing Israel's embassy and cutting diplomatic ties. They're not having it in South Africa. Uh, The vote on the motion supported by the ruling ANC uh, came as President Cyril Ramposa uh, is meeting with other world leaders. Um, uh, um, And uh, there are those uh, who believe that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza with its military offensive. South Africa, uh, one of those nations, but they've moved boldly. Um, some might say brazenly, um, I don't know, um, to vote in favor of closing Israel's embassy and to cut ties, diplomatic ties with Israel until they stop what they're doing in Gaza. Uh, one of my listeners uh, reminds me, which I, I know full well, but he reminds me, I'm glad he did, uh, that one of the first people that Nelson Mandela went to see when he was released was the PLO leader Yasser Arafat in Palestine. Uh, it's one of the first uh, visits that Mandela made when he got out was to visit Yasser Arafat in Palestine, and I remember very vividly, like it was yesterday, uh, when Mandela came to this country, uh, and he appeared on Nightline with uh, uh, Ted Koppel, uh, and Ted Koppel raised a question about his relationship with Yasser Arafat. Uh, Ted uh, Nelson Mandela just went in; he went in on Ted Koppel, I and mean, this was this was this was the Ted Koppel. But he was talking to the Nelson Mandela, and Mandela said, I remember like it was yesterday, Mr. Koppel, you do not tell us who our friends are. You do not tell us, South Africans, who our friends are. And Nelson Mandela chastised Ted Koppel live on national television on ABC. Uh, if you've never seen that clip, you should Google it. Uh, it's worth looking at again to just watch Nelson Mandela put his foot 
up Ted Koppel's behind when he made that comment. You don't tell us who our friends are, Mr. <laughs> Koppel. It was quite a moment. And I remember, again, uh, quite quite vividly. All that said, there's breaking news out of South Africa. We'll let Lewis Gordon weave all his comments in about those things. But before we uh, step aside for that break, you were responding to my notion uh, of King, not to my mind, ever talking specifically about anti-violence. You were saying uh, in your own brilliance, that the answer to violence is not even nonviolence, and it certainly isn't counterviolence. It's what you call anti-violence. And you then said that it is a myth to believe that the civil rights movement was nonviolent. Take it away, Dr. Gordon. Sure. The bottom line is that the history of this society has been such that violence is only violence if it happens to whites. Mm. As a consequence, look at the civil rights movement. Look at the number of black people who were who had d- dogs on them, burnt alive, bombed, injured, imprisoned. Black number of black women and men who were raped. The number of just mob assaults. That is a violent situation. The mistake people make when they talk about violence is they they deal with the specific actions in terms of a specific human being onto another human being. But they don't talk about an atmosphere of violence, an entire way in which a society could be organized in such a way that it diminishes the lives of others. In this case, black people or Native American peoples, in such a way that it inflates the life of others. So when white people were killed, that was violence. And because the number of white people who were harmed, in fact, when we think about the instances where white civil rights activists were harmed, that eclipsed the reality of the blacks they were with. So the first part is that was not a nonviolent struggle. Second, the, the, the issue in terms of, of, of anti-violence, we have to remember today we look at the civil rights movement a certain way. In its time, every one of those people who are active on the street demanding their rights as human beings and citizens of the society were called violent. In other words, they were actively fighting for a society that would be better. Now, we have not achieved Shangri-La, you know, you know we're, we're not in a utopic situation, mm-hmm. but their actions really set the conditions for a better situation on which to struggle than what they faced. And so I would argue that actually the civil rights struggle and also preceding the civil rights struggle, the many struggles that were going on, in terms of, of groups from, from, from William Patterson all the way back to Benjamin Davis, all the way through, back to David Walker, who was very explicit about violence. Mm-hmm. They were all ultimately fighting for a world in which you eliminate the dichotomy of the conqueror and the conquered. Mm. And that is what anti-violence is about. And I would argue that the philosophy of anti-violence was connected to King, but that King kept his eye on the prize of love. And because he took that very seriously, a lot of people and the language of the time made him say nonviolence. Mm-hmm. And also, even when we look at Gandhi, the situation in India was very similar. Mm-hmm. I would argue that that movement wasn't a nonviolent situation. It was ultimately a goal of anti-violence. But, but, but we need to get to, I know because of the time goes by so fast. It does. Several <laughs> things. The first thing is you had Robin Washington on. Yeah, he and I are... Black Jews, whenever you know, hear about black Jews, people always want to know how. And we're like the same way any other out of the Jews, a Jew, right? Yes. We're born Jewish. Our yes. mothers were Jewish. Yes. And, and, and his mother, I mean, the difference between him and me is, is his Jewish uh, maternal line is Ashkenazi, which is, connects to European Jews. 
Mine is what people, mine connect to Palestine. It's Jews from Jerusalem in the 19th century, Palestine. The, back in, before Israel's Friday, there used to be a group called Palestinian Jews. And then, and, 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 her, and another line was, was Sephardic Irish Jews. And so the, in my childhood, I mean, every, every Jew I knew was, was just not white. It was mm-hmm. just, just brown. My, my mother was a dark-skinned black woman. Mm-hmm. So, it's, so that, just for the listeners to know, there's a whole world of Jews beyond the stereotype of white Jews. And one of the things people need to understand is that what tends to dominate the image of a group tends to be where they're politically located. Mm-hmm. So when, 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 when the, the Arab Islamic world dominated uh, a lot of areas, Jews in those areas became the face of Jews. When it was, uh, if you go into certain parts where there were Ethiopian groups, there was a period where those Jews dominated. And right now, because of the U.S., and also its history of race that makes people full citizens when they are white, the image of Jews as white dominates today. But we're talking about what in, and I don't like the term because it's more complicated, a multiracial group of people. Sure. But even there, it's even more complicated because a lot of people don't know how recently Jews are. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people really think that these ancient people we read about in the Bible were Jews. They were not. Right, Judaism is something very recent, but it, that would require a whole other program to talk about. But if we talk about Hebrew-speaking people, Israelite people, people in the ancient worlds, there were that's a very different thing. And a specific group well, from what we call Judea, and a specific group of historical circumstances led to the creation of people we call Jews. So when we now, so, 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 so I want to ask yeah. you, I'm, I'm trying to manage this time here. Um, what I what I want to ask you when we come forward here, uh, right quick here. Uh, is how what you just laid out about your genealogy frames or impacts how you see this present moment. Um, Talking, of course, about what's happening in uh, Israel and Hamas. Um, As we sit right now, we are waiting on news unless something is broken in the last few minutes that I missed. Uh, We are expecting an announcement that they have agreed to a a, a hostage exchange. Uh, Hamas will turn over uh, hostages. Israel will turn over hostages. So there will be, we are told, a cessation uh, in the fighting, at least temporarily, uh, for this hostage uh, exchange to take place. Assuming all the details are worked out. That was the story when I came on the air a couple hours ago. We'll see where that story is when we come forward. Forward. But I want to ask uh, our, our guest, um, Dr. Lewis Gordon, a brilliant philosopher at UConn, how his being black and Jewish frames the way he sees his present moment, given, again, in this country that most black people are Christians on the one hand. On the other hand, we understand what the Palestinians are going through uh, and we, we feel for them. How do you, how do you square, uh, juxtapose those things? We'll talk about that when we come forward right quick on Tavis Smiley. For all the freedom-loving folk, this is Tavis Smiley. I feel like freedom. He's rooting for everybody black. Everybody black. black. More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Right now. Right now. Dr. Lewis Gordon, you are black and Jewish. How does that frame how you see the current crisis in the Middle East? Well, it frames in, in many ways, but one of the th- there are several things I must say. Everything I've said about valuing the life of our fellow human beings, I stand by. Mm-hmm. The sec- and, and the second thing, because uh, we only have a limited amount of time, this is radio, because this is something that would require the whole time. I'm going to say some things very quickly, and they're not going to satisfy everybody. Okay? The, the first thing is we have to pay attention 
to what South Africa is. South Africa is a country with a very specific history in which part of that history was an alliance between the Irish Liberation Army, in other words, the struggles in Ireland, the struggle in Palestine, and the struggle in South Africa. So those roots go very deep. Mm -hmm. It's not just now. That's right. Okay? Second, within those roots, there were other countries who also allied themselves uh, with South Africa, uh, Ireland, and Palestine, and they got a lot of pummeling from the United States. Jamaica was among those, by the way. And South Africa honored and respected those allegiances. So South Africa takes very seriously what it is to come through for the allies they had during those difficult times. Mm -hmm. Three, in South Africa, and this again, this is something people don't understand. The policies that were implemented in South Africa, the apartheid system and all of that stuff, were actually, the blueprint for them, were actually from the United States and Canada. So for South Africans, with that history, seeing now the United States, when the South African, particularly black South Africans, will identify with, with the Northern Irish and with Palestinians, and they know the U.S. history around apartheid South Africa, that already is going to, is, is creating post-traumatic stress <laughs> at a political level. Yes, it is. Okay? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I got you. I got you. Ne next, the other thing that we have to understand, and this is hard for many people, about what political responsibility is. Political responsibility is about being an adult, which means that a lot of people want a naive world in which when you make difficult ethical, political and courageous choices, you're to do them without consequence. Now, South Africa as knows what the consequences are in terms of its relationship to not only to the U.S., but also to Russia. And a lot of those, and, and, and what's going on with also China. So you put that together, South Africa has, has the, 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 the right we already know as a country but it also has made a stand. In other words, South Africa did not want to be exclusively rhetorical. Now, I can't speak for the exact minds of the people who made that vote. Sure, sure, sure. But it, but it strikes me, if as a country you're going to condemn another country's action, you've got to put some teeth behind it. Mm. And, so, and so it seems to me, when I think politically, okay, that, that the South African country, the South African government is doing the right thing, given its position. And not, not, ju not, just given, not just given its position, but to your point, given its history. And I'm glad you laid that history out brilliantly uh, and, and quite precisely, because if you understand uh, its position, born of its history, then this decision today that everybody's going to be talking about for the next couple of days makes perfect sense. Um, it is shocking on some level to see any nation state say they are cutting diplomatic ties with Israel uh, over what's happening uh, in Gaza. Uh, but when you understand, again, the history, then you hear Dr. Gordon say in their minds and given their situation and their standing and their position, they have done the right thing consistent with where South Africa has always been. Our remaining moments, Dr. Lewis Gordon, when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. From the Merck Park with love, 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 this is Tavis Smiley. Oh! 
More honesty than you can handle. More empowerment than you can imagine. You're tuned in to Tavis Smiley. Dr. Lewis Gordon, I've got three minutes left. I'll leave it all to you. But I think the way to put a bow on all of this, given what you've just said brilliantly about South Africa and uh, the situation they find themselves in, is how each of us, nation, states, or individuals, can live more ethically and more courageously. Well, okay, several things I have to say. The first thing, nation, states. I have to say I am an adamant, um, what's the word, critic. I absolutely reject nation states. Okay. And one of the reasons for this is the moment you, map, you, you put a marriage between a nation and a state, you're going to construct illegal people, mm. people who don't belong, all of the problems we see. A lot of people don't realize how recent nation states are, and we can do better than that. I, I argue, actually, I'm not against nations, but I'm against the marriage of nations and states. And humanity right now is dealing with the fallout damage of this abomination called nation states. Because once you create this, then other people are going to say, well, why don't I have my nation state? Why don't I have mine? And we're going to, and, and, and in a way, this is part of the injustice. Because once one group of people are able to have their nation states, I don't see any legitimate at the level of ethics, justice, whatever you want to call it, in which you could say that Palestinian people don't have a right to their state. But the fact of the matter is, if everybody got nation states, we're going to have to start dealing with uh, realities of what it is to live politically and ethically on a planet in which we're all so interconnected that those kinds of models don't work. Second, we have to deal with the fact that a lot of people don't know the histories of what's going on here. For instance, even with Mandela, Mandela did not reject the right of Israel to exist. That's right. What What Mandela rejected is exactly what we see going on right now. Because, you see, when countries move to the right, when they become very right-wing, they become theocracies. Mm-hmm. And what has happened is these, 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 these people who are trying to create these, these biblical imagined notions of how to have a society is jeopardized things because they have been moving out and settling beyond Israel into West Bank, which is an abomination, and what has been happening also in Gaza. There are people who, are, in other words, are completely committed to eradicating the possibility of peace in the area because they imagine through armed conflict they are able to get their expansion. i got 30 seconds, Doc. Right, 30 seconds for you. Go okay. Yeah. And very quickly, uh, a lot of people don't know the history of how those people played a role in popping up Hamas, which is connected to a more right-wing project of Islamicism. But the Palestinian people is a very different issue. The Palestinian people need to have something better. There yeah. need to be a situation of justice and more. But that won't be able to be handled in such a short time properly in this response. But for now, for now, it is pretty clear that Israel could have started at the beginning with pol- swapping political prisoners to deal with the hostages, we will, and the conflicts could have been not as severe. We'll but we, that's another discussion to have. It is. We'll see what happens today with this proposed hostage swap um, uh, as the day uh, progresses. Uh, for now, we thank Lewis Gordon. The good news is he's a resident philosopher here, so he'll be back again, and we'll do it uh, do it for another hour. Uh, that's our show for today. Thanks for tuning in to Tavis Smiley, and as always, keep the faith. <laughs>